3: I'm Alexis Madrigal, welcome to Forum, both to our regular Bay Area listeners and those joining us for this special statewide coverage dedicated to the recall election. You've probably heard by now that the effort to recall Governor Gavin Newsom has failed. This is what most people expected from the beginning, but some dicey polling over the summer seemed to show that Newsom was in trouble. That's when the Democratic machine kicked into gear and he cruised to victory. But Newsom said voters didn't just say no to the recall. We said yes to science. We said yes to
4: vaccines. We said yes to ending this pandemic.
3: Today, we'll be analyzing what happened at the polls and what it means for the rest of Newsom's term and California politics and policy. That's all coming up after this news. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome to Forum's special statewide coverage of The Recall. Well, after a few nervous weeks for Democrats and the governor's team over the summer, the actual recall election was a non-event. Polls closed at 8 p.m. Pacific, and it was all over before that hour ended. As of this morning, no on the recall holds a 28-point advantage, a landslide. So what's it mean for Newsom, the state's Republican Party, and its newly empowered standard bearer Larry Elder, and California generally? Joining us to discuss the many issues, we have two members of our excellent KQED politics team, Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown, and Katie Orr, politics and government reporter. Welcome. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks. Scott, since 2016, it feels like we've almost gotten acclimated to the sort of wild outcomes and unpredictable politics, but this one played out pretty much as expected, right?
4: It did. I mean, there were some ups and downs. There was some uh, panic among some Democrats uh, in the summer with some polls showing that maybe Newsom was in trouble. And I think the big question a few weeks ago was who were the likely voters going to be? Who was going to vote? And that was the big problem. But in the end, uh, Democrats rallied around Newsom. They got the message that the stakes were high, and I think uh, the entrance and the success of Larry Elder getting into the race relatively late in July really clarified the race, not just for Newsom. It, It changed it away from being a race about an up or down vote on Newsom to a vote between Newsom and Elder, and Elder's positions were so you know, far outside, so far outside the mainstream in California, it made the choice a lot easier. And it mobilized, I think, uh, Democrats because they realized we could end up with somebody we really disagree with as governor. Katie, looking up and down the state, you know, we see some
3: strength in the urban areas, obviously. Did any particular county or any other geographic trend kind of stand out to you?
1: Well, I think it's not surprising that we see in the uh, northwest and very north part of the state, that's a very strong Republican whole county, you know, a stronghold. He lost those counties, but he did, you know, do better than maybe people thought he would have. Same within the Central Valley. There are some counties that, you know, he he had a strong showing in. And I think that that is a testament, especially in the Central Valley, um, to his approach to COVID, because a lot of those places were hit very hard. Uh, If you remember last year, there, you know, he even sent in strike teams to certain parts of the state to try and get the, the situation under control. And I think the fact that he did well in those places shows that they uh, respect his response to the pandemic and don't think that this is the time to change uh, change leadership yeah
3: let's bring in mark DiCamillo. camillo he is the director of the berkeley institute for governmental studies paul welcome mark
5: thank you very much good morning
3: Let's let's talk about the polls that Scott mentioned a little bit earlier. I mean, was the tightening of the recall race that the polls seemed to show over the summer, was it real or was it really an artifact of the way that the polls were being conducted?
5: Well, I mean, every poll has to define likely voters. And uh, what we do in all polls, uh, you have to rely on voter testimony. And in the late part of the summer, we did a poll in late July, uh, Democrats we're not that interested in voting. Uh, 58% gave a high interest score in terms of voting in this election. Uh, we also asked them directly, how certain are you to vote? Republicans were much more certain to vote in late July, so the Democrats didn't make it into the likely voter screen. And uh, in that setting, if the election were held at that moment, it would have been fairly close. Uh, but the you know, as we all know, the Democrats woke up, and many of them in our final poll said that they would be uh, participating 80% uh, reported high interest or had already voted. Uh, That really narrowed the interest gap and it it basically returned the electorate to what I would consider kind of its normal characteristics.
3: So how did your final poll compare to at least the returns that we have in so far?
5: Well, we had about a 22 point edge and that was one week before the election. That's when uh, we completed our survey uh, it's now at 28 points on the no side, uh, but you know there's still two million votes outstanding, and so I'm still you know as I looked at the returns as they were coming in on election night, uh, that 64 uh, percent number that we are now at now on the no side that really was down from 68, 69 percent early in the evening. So what you saw in the early vote. The early vote, being the votes that were cast by mail, uh, maybe before the weekend, was a heavy, heavy no vote. But you had actually more uh, yes voters than no voters coming in on election night, um, and that may continue. I don't know. We, we, you know, usually the final vote. There's probably two million votes outstanding. Uh, it may be a mixture. Uh, even if it were about an even split, yes to no, uh, you'd get about a twenty-five point. Uh, final uh, results. So we'll have to wait and see what the final result is. Uh, but I would say that the polls did quite well. And one other thing I would uh, point out is that the other, uh, what I would consider a very credible poll in this state, the Public Policy Institute poll, uh, they had, they did a poll one week before we did. And so if you just take these two polls in tandem, uh, they had a 19 point no side advantage. Uh, one week later, we had a 22 point no side advantage. And again, I'm expecting that it'll end up being about 25 points plus. So, you know, I Mm -hmm. thought the polls did fairly well.
3: Let's talk about some of the demographics of the people who ended up voting. You know, I just did a quick sort on the data and saw that, you know, 11 of the 12 whitest counties in California voted to recall Newsom. What What do we know about the demographic breakdown of the people who wanted to recall Newsom and those who wanted to retain him?
5: Well, certainly they're Republican and conservative, uh, and they very likely voted for Donald Trump uh, in the 2020 presidential election. Those were the highest correlates for voting yes. Now, when you go to the county level, I'd be cautious about looking at the county results right now because again, there's two million votes still outstanding. For example, you know, if you look at Fresno County, for example, you have a slight no side advantage right now. Um, you know, I think odds are that that'll end up being on the yes side when all the votes are counted. So, you know, I wouldn't go too far where we are right now. Uh, But still, you're right. Uh, The rural counties, the Central Valley, uh, the inland areas like the Inland Empire are more likely uh, to be on the yes side. The coast, almost solidly voting no. And that's a very traditional uh, profile of the regional split of the state of California.
3: Have you seen any areas that voted sort of against type?
5: Not really. I mean, there were some early stories about how the Latinos might be voting uh, more for the yes side than the no side. Uh, I think they were just late attenders to the uh, to the issue. Uh, and that's more traditional for Latinos. They come into the game late. They're playing a little more catch-up in terms of what's going on in politics in the state. Uh, but our final poll showed them... Uh, more than two to one on the uh, no side and I think that's pretty much as expected so I didn't see anything really uh, that jumped out at me uh, in, in our final poll uh, most of the uh, subgroups that uh, you know would be traditional democratic uh, uh, constituencies were heavily on the no side
3: thank you very much Mark D Camillo director of the Berkeley Institute for Governmental studies Paul appreciate your time during this uh, busy uh, season for you I'm sure thank you Thank you. Uh, Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's Californian Politics and Government Desk. I, I wanted to ask you about Newsom's strategy. He took some guff for this throughout the, the summer and into the fall uh, about basically just saying, keep it simple. Just vote no on the recall. Do you think this victory sort of vindicated that strategy? Absolutely.
4: Uh, you know, there was a lot of hand wringing in the summer because Democrats didn't have a plan B uh, in that poll that Mark talked about a moment ago which uh, showed the recall much more close than it turned out to be because of the likely voter pool at that moment there were a lot of Democrats saying well gee maybe we should have had a safety valve maybe we should have had the lieutenant governor Lainey Kunalakis or somebody else running just in case Gavin Newsom is recalled and I think from the beginning you know they they, they looked what, at what happened in 2003 when the lieutenant governor then Cruz Bustamati ran sort of half-heartedly said vote no on the recall but then vote for me as a replacement. And it diluted the message, it confused voters. It also probably drew some votes away from Newsom, I'm sorry, from uh, Gray Davis, uh, to people who may- maybe wanted a Latino governor. They, won- they preferred Cruz Bustamante. And so by keeping it simple and just saying, uh, you know, vote no on the recall, and then that's it. As he said uh, on Election Day, Gavin Newsom, vote no and go. <laughs> Don't pick a replacement. And a lot of people, a lot of voters followed that advice. I think some four million voters did not vote on the second part of that ballot And it did make it simple. It clarified the message. It also made it simpler to say this is a Republican power grab because there weren't uh, prominent Democrats also, you know, vying uh, for for votes. So it it really clarified it. And then I think, uh, you know, the the result last night just really underscores uh, that that worked pretty well. Katie Orr, uh, KQD's politics and government reporter, I want to know if there
3: were any particular issues that seemed like they were going to have an effect on this recall election, like, say, the, the governor's handling of education.
1: Right. Um, I had done a story too about, you know, just how that would exactly education possibly uh, affect the the recall, because that was one of the pressure points for Newsom during the COVID pandemic. Because as we all know, uh, there are no vaccines for children under 12 yet. Uh, there weren't any vaccines for much of the pandemic. And so you had parents working at home, trying to deal with their kids at home. And it was just an incredibly stressful situation. In the meantime, Governor Newsom got flack because his children, uh, who went to private school, were attending school in person, so he didn't have to deal with them at home. So there were sort of mixed messages. There was a lot of people, too, that felt like he had been a little hands-off on education uh, prior to December of last year. And... He will tell you and his supporters will tell you that's because uh, he was trying to give school districts more control. Their their school districts are big on local control. They want to make up, you know, their own rules and and decide how— to best go forward uh, on their own and he was trying to do that but in the end uh there was a lot of you know there was sort of a patchwork of kids going to school in one area and kids not going to school in another area that's all to say that parents were growing incredibly frustrated and i think there was some concern that that they might take that out uh in the ballot box turns out not enough of them did so he was okay
3: (laughs) You're listening to special statewide coverage of the recall election with KQED's forum. We're discussing the results with Scott Schaefer, senior editor for our politics and government desk and co-host of Political Breakdown, as well as Katie Orr, politics and government reporter. We're bringing in more guests for analysis, and we want to hear from you. Do you think this election gives Newsom a mandate for his policies? Or do you think there's a message voters were sending in the recall that the governor should be paying attention to? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break.
2: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to special statewide coverage of the recall election with KQED's forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined by Scott Schaefer, co-host of our show, Political Breakdown. Katie Orr, politics and government reporter at KQED. And we'd like to welcome Mike Madrid to the show. He's the co-founder of The Lincoln Project, a political consultant and partner of Grassroots Lab. Welcome, Mike Madrid.
6: Thanks for having me.
3: I want to listen to a little cut of Larry Elder from last night and then talk with you about it.
4: As you know, my opponent, Governor Gavin and
7: Newsom. Come on. Let's
2: let's let's be gracious. Let's be gracious in defeat.
4: And by the way, we may have lost the the battle, but we are going to win the war.
3: Mike Madrid, there's a couple things in there. There's both Larry Elder and there's also all the people booing. (laughs) And I want to know what you think about Elder's ascendance uh, and what it means for California's Republican Party.
6: Well, the dominance of Larry Elder in this multi-candidate field is really illustrative of just how performative politics has consumed the Republican base. You had a very substantive candidate, whether you agreed with him or not, and Kevin Falconer, who was the mayor of the second largest city in the state, who is running on a very complex and deep policy platform, Um, and there's just no appetite for that in the current modern Republican Party. Uh, Larry Elder, in many ways, exemplifies sort of the bravado and kind of the outrageous, uh, you know, machine politics that became the Trump presidency in 2016, and that's what is animating the Republican voter. That's what animates the Republican base. Both sides, both Republican and Democrat, are consumed by what we call negative partisanship, which is defining uh, your your stridency against the opposite party. And Larry Elder has been doing that for 20 years. That's what propelled him, again, as a, as a radio talk show host, his, his uh, voter name identification was very high, especially in Southern California, the six largest counties in the state. He was very well known, again, not because of his government experience, not because of his policy platforms, but because of his persona, because of the performative nature of the way we expect, or at least Republicans expect their politicians to be. And that's what allowed him to not only capture the hearts and minds of these Republican voters, but still establish the dominance, even after this this historic beating, to probably be the presumptive nominee in the uh, upcoming gubernatorial reelection in 2022.
3: I mean, why couldn't Falconer get any traction? Was there more that the party could have done, if they wanted to, to build... Uh, a a candidate with much deeper experience as the gubernatorial uh, candidate on the right?
6: Well, that's a great question. And there's a couple of different points there. The first is the Republican Party is no longer interested really in the process of governing. They're not looking for experienced, substantive candidates. That's not the profile of who's leading this party anymore. Um, And so Kevin Faulkner found himself really with no lane. I thought it was really fascinating that, you know, for the past three or four years, Mayor Falconer of San Diego was viewed as sort of the last person on the bench, the last up-and-comer in the Republican Party, whose rising star could probably bring back the Republican Party's fortunes in California if it were possible. Now, one of the main things, the crown jewels of that substantive, uh, credible persona, was being anti-Trump. He spoke out against the rising ethno-nationalism in the Republican Party. He was a very classical conservative. And yet just a few weeks before he jumped into this recall race, he switched, sat down with reporters and said, uh, you know, I voted for Donald Trump. And then he started to float pictures of him and Donald Trump in the mayor's office, um, recognizing that that's where the Republican base was at. I think it's probably going to be one of the most damaging political moves that I've seen in my adult life. Um, It's essentially going to end his career because the Trump base doesn't believe him and doesn't support him because he wasn't a true believer from the beginning. And he squandered all his moderate, reasonable credentials trying to crawl his way through this recall primary. And we'll see if uh, we'll see what uh, his what magic tricks he tries to pull out of the hat if he does continue in this primary in twenty twenty two.
3: What happens to the data that's been generated by this recall election by candidates like Elder is that going to be available in the next set of election cycles to sort of see you know, Dems who might have been recall curious, but ultimately fled back to safety with, with Newsom, at least in some legislative districts? Is this actually going to change the tactics of uh, the next election cycle?
6: Look, I really don't think so. I think this race was much ado about nothing. Uh, there was some polling that showed some squishiness with voters back in the middle of the summer, as Mark pointed out. But the truth of the matter is, my firm was was putting this out in the middle of it. The math has never been good on this on this on this recall. And what we'll probably see is a, an eerily similar trajectory of this race, once all the votes are counted, to what happened in the twenty eighteen gubernatorial election. And that will be you know a decisive twenty point win by Gavin Newsom. It will look eerily similar to what happened with Jerry Brown and Neil Kashkari four years before that, and then four years before that, Jerry Brown and Meg Whitman. This is all becoming rather predictable in an era of hyper non-negative partisanship. Democratic voters are not crossing over. Republican voters are not crossing over. And the decline to states are breaking the way that their demographic profiles would suggest. So looking for enthusiasm for a candidate is a mistake. It's a misnomer. It's what people are against is what is defining modern political attitudes by a much greater degree than what they are for. And that, again, is entirely predictable in an environment like this when a campaign is run like that. So whatever data has been corralled by the campaigns and the candidates uh, can be kept in use for them again. But the use of it is is, 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 this is really elementary. This is not brain surgery here to figure out that in a two to one Democratic state, the Democrats are going to win in a route 99 times out of 100.
3: Yeah. Scott Schaefer, um, what do you think about what happened between Larry Elder, Falconer, and the rest of the field?
4: You know, I'm looking at this map, a color map of the state, and it is a sea of blue, blue being Larry Elder. He won 57 out of 58 counties, the only exception being San Francisco, where uh, the only real Democrat running, Kevin Paffrath, edged out Larry Elder just barely. And what jumps out at me is San Diego County. That is Kevin Faulkner and, for that matter, John Cox's home base. Uh, You know, he was mayor down there, Faulkner was. He was on the city council. He's well-known. Larry Elder got forty-five percent of the replacement vote to fifteen percent or so, Jeez. maybe sixteen percent for Faulkner. That tells you everything you need to know about where the Republican Party is in California. Wow! Let's bring in Bill
3: from Moraga to the show. Welcome.
4: Hi. How are you doing?
8: Good. Good. Thanks for giving us a call. Well, thank you very much for having this discussion today, and I, I'm really appreciating the the insight and commentary of the guest. Um, the, the, the one uh, thing I wanted to respond to, though, um, uh, is just – and I could be an anomaly, but I, I would just point out as a, a counterpoint, I am a lifelong Democrat. I can't think of any election where I have voted for a Republican, um, and I can't really see why I would do that now, but had Larry Elder not emerged as the Republican's sweetheart – I absolutely would have voted to recall Gavin Newsom. Uh, I think that was probably the biggest tactical error that the Republicans made. Um, They should have tried to endorse somebody that was a little bit more moderate uh, because the math was never good for them. But I think that Gavin Newsom, if he's going to take a message away from this, it should not be a ringing endorsement that um, all Democrats favor him. I think that he asked Californians to make significant sacrifices that ultimately, privately, he did not make. And, um, you know, the French laundry was, as far as I was concerned, probably one of the biggest self-inflicted political wounds. Um, and you just wonder, how could somebody do that? And I think if you actually look at Gavin Newsom's history, he has, a, he has a demonstrated track record of having a very public face that is different from his very private face.
3: Bill from Moraga, thanks so much. Katie Orr, I, I wanted to know from you as someone who's out in the field reporting, talking to people all the time, Was the French Laundry thing really a major driver for this, like for for everyday people? Or was that a a, more of a media phenomenon?
1: You know, I think the thing about the French Laundry is that it came at a crucial time because the deadline to uh, collect signatures for the recall petition had just been extended, like just been extended, I think maybe two days before, a day before the French Laundry happened. And so when that story hit the papers, and this, keep in mind, was amidst one of the worst COVID waves that the state had been going through. Uh, So people were feeling very hopeless, locked down. The governor was on the news every day telling them, you know, stay home, don't do anything outside your home that you don't have to do, it's time to make sacrifices. And then this picture emerges of him at not just a restaurant, but one of the most exclusive restaurants in the country. Right. Yes, I think it did have an impact on people. They, you know, picture's worth a thousand words and you're sitting at home with your screaming kids, and he's, you know, drinking really nice wine. Um, yeah, I think that hurt him. And I think yes. that led people to to sign the recall petition. It
3: was like, yeah, the all-time facepalm. I want to bring in uh, David Chu, Assemblymember, District 17, California State Assembly. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Good morning. David, talk, talk to us about this French laundry thing um, one last time. I, 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 what did you make of it? And what do you take away from it, even just as a politician yourself?
9: No, listen, um, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and all Californians are frustrated, frustrated about where we are. Uh, Folks are grumpy, folks are angry, and it is no surprise that that French Laundry incident really did uh, uh, have an impact on things, Uh, and as Katie just mentioned, the fact that that incident coincided with the extension provided by a judge for the collection of these signatures uh, really lit fuel to that that collection effort now that being said governor newsom has apologized for that incident i can't imagine uh that if he could turn back the clock uh, i can't imagine that he is uh uh that 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 is certainly something he wished had not happened and uh and and he absolutely uh has 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 been working so hard to move beyond that but the timing of those stories you know clearly added fuel to to the effort you're listening to a special statewide coverage
3: of the recall election with KQED's Forum. We're joined by David Chu, Assemblymember District 17, California State Assembly, Mike Madrid, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, Scott Schaefer of KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and Katie Orr, Politics and Government Reporter with KQED. And we want to hear from you. Do you think this election gives Newsom a mandate for his policies Or should he appeal to those who voted against him? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Beth writes, as a fiscal conservative and a Republican, I voted no on the recall because I believed it was a waste of money since the governor will be up for reelection in 14 months. And there was no winnable mm-hmm. Republican candidate, just a circus. Um, Mike Madrid, what do you see? I, I, I can't imagine just knowing your profile, knowing how long you've been involved in Republican politics in the state of California, that you're hopeful that things are going to turn on a dime now that the recall election, uh, recall effort has failed. So what do you think is going to happen?
6: I think, unfortunately, the Republican Party is going to continue to devolve into this nationalistic uh, regional party. If you look at the election results from last night, what you will see is a very different California than when I first became a Republican and a professional in this industry 25, 30 years ago. It used to be that Orange County and San Diego were Republican strongholds. Most of the college-educated coastal voters that uh, represented a big wing of the Republican Party have now left and are are, uh, Democrats or independent and independent leaning. Uh, The party is refusing to adjust. It's refusing to evolve uh, on cultural issues, on social issues and even on economic issues at this point to adjust to the modern California reality. And I would argue even to the national uh, reality. And as a result, what we are locked in is a cultural war between those that would choose to regress to a mythical America that never really existed in the past and a California that is barreling down the road of social progress at a very, very quick pace. Uh, so we have very two very real Californians, but the Republican party uh, is made up largely of white, uh, as, as I think you pointed out, 11 of these 12 counties that are the whitest counties voted for the uh, recall. Uh, They're rural. They have a lower college attainment levels than than the average, and they have lower income, medium incomes. So a lot of these Republicans in California, these very rural North areas, areas in the Central Valley and even the Inland Empire, look a lot very similar to Republicans in in Alabama, West Virginia, Wisconsin, other parts of the country, more so than they do the average Californian, and they're voting accordingly. The problem for the republican party is that it's the fastest shrinking demographic in the state and it has been for many decades And my strong sense is it will continue down that trajectory uh, rather than try to evolve and adjust to a modern state
3: yeah i want to add kim alexander president and founder of the california voter foundation to our conversation welcome to the show kim
10: hi thanks for having me
3: so one response on the right Uh, to the demographic changes and the sort of unwinnability of some elections has become to talk about voter fraud. In fact, Larry Elder even released accusations of, uh, baseless accusations of voter fraud before the election actually occurred. Kim Alexander, can you tell us uh, a little bit about the protections that are in place to prevent um, voter fraud and to secure election uh, security?
10: Yes, California has what's widely considered to be the most secure voting system in the nation. We require all equipment to be tested and certified. Those tests include looking at the source code, uh, stress testing, volume testing, functionality testing, uh, security testing. So all of those reports are available on the Secretary of State's website. We also require paper ballots and post-election audits, and that's something California really led the way on nationwide. Um, And people can go and watch that process if they want to. Um, California has a very secure voting system, so it's disappointing to hear our former president and a leading candidate for uh, the replacement ballot to be making these uh, false claims. And they really have eroded between, you know, the narrative that came out of the 2020 presidential election combined with this narrative, they've really eroded uh, voter confidence among California Republicans. And it's so unfortunate. I mean, the only you know, sort of election interference I've really witnessed this election is this these false claims that can dissuade people from wanting to vote altogether. And that's what I worry about.
3: You know, uh, listener Mike writes, what lessons might the GOP take from this election regarding the strategy of claiming voter fraud? Do we know how much it may have discouraged GOP voters and will voters buy this argument in the midterms?
10: Kim Alexander? I know that the Public Policy Institute of California, which Mark referenced earlier, did a study that did find uh, a significant percentage of California Republicans have uh, little confidence now in our elections. So I think it's a good question. I mean, I don't have an answer to that. Mike Madrid might know better than me. But to me, it just seems like a no-win strategy to go out and tell people that your votes aren't going to count and then ask them to come out and vote for your side. Um, So I I don't understand it, and um, I I don't know if it's really just meant to draw attention. Um, What really upset me this election was, you know, these false claims had completely captured the entire narrative of this election by the time we got to Election Day. I mean, every headline that you saw on CNN, on MSNBC, in the New York Times and the Washington Post, they're all reporting on these false claims. And so even when candidates are making these false claims and you're trying to combat them, you're still doing harm to voter confidence because people are hearing those stories and and people like me are having to respond to them. And, you know, the people who really lose out are the election officials. They are the frontline workers of democracy, and they're the ones that are bearing the brunt of these false uh, claims and having voters You know, confront them and demand answers, and then not want to listen to them, and it's it's been very distressful for our election leaders. David Chu, how
3: should Democrats respond to these kinds of allegations? Because in responding to them, you end up drawing more attention to them. It's it's a very difficult rhetorical situation.
9: I'm sorry, you, you, you cut out for a quick second. Could you repeat that again?
3: Oh, sure. Um, well, you know, actually, let's do this after the break. I was going to ask you how Democrats should respond to these kind of fraud allegations, but we'll we'll get to that. Right now, you're listening to special statewide coverage of the recall election with KQED's Forum. We're joined by Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, Katie Orr, Politics and Government Reporter at KQED, Mike Madrid, Co-Founder of the Lincoln Project, David Chu, Assembly Member, District 17, and Kim Alexander, President and founder of the California Voter Foundation. And we want to hear from you. What message does this recall send? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to special statewide coverage of the recall election with KQED's Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Before the break, we were talking about the claims that some uh, Republicans running in the recall election made about the uh, integrity of the election. And I wanted to get uh, Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, take on it.
4: You know, I was thinking yesterday, Alexis, about these allegations of fraud and what lessons could be learned. And, you know, if you look back to the special election in Georgia, the runoffs in Georgia for the Senate race that determined the outcome of control of the Senate, a lot of people thought that Donald Trump complaining about the process and the voting and vote rigging and criticizing the secretary of state in Georgia really cost the Republicans those one, if not both, of those Senate seats because it depressed turnout. You know, and in places like, say, Florida or Texas, where Republicans erroneously and without basis complain about things like voter fraud at least the legislatures in those states can enact draconian laws which will suppress democratic votes i'm not i'm not 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 endorsing that but that's what happens there is no upside to that in california the legislature is not going to do that the voters aren't going to do that and so it's kind of consistent with some of the frankly, crazy things Larry Elder was saying uh, in terms of, you know, all kinds of things, slavery, women, minimum wage. And it makes you wonder if Larry Elder really isn't more interested in being a popular talk show host than, than a governor who's, you know, serious about running a state. Because a serious candidate wouldn't say those things. Right.
3: David Chu, uh, Assembly uh, member of District 17, how should Democrats respond to those kinds of attacks on the election because it kind of can provide fuel for the fire um, by drawing more attention to these kinds of allegations.
9: It is a very depressing uh, aspect of what's happening to our democracy these days. The fact that the new Republican playbook is to claim that every election they lose is fraudulent. I would just point out that uh, Republicans are also winning campaigns and somehow they don't think that uh, there are any fraud issues with, with those campaigns. Those are all administered perfectly. and And Clearly, this is absurd. Um, I think it's important for us to just point out that uh, if you look at the simple voter math, the fact that there are just so many more Democrats than the Republicans, uh, that suggests a result if if folks are voting uh, correctly, um, but uh, this is something that we all have to be concerned about, about how do we continue to build um, uh, people's faith in our voting systems, in our electoral process, in our democracy. Uh, it's something that we are working hard in the legislature to make sure that everyone has that ability to vote easily uh, and uh, and have their vote count. Um, Nate Wright, one of our listeners. I'm one of many
3: California voters that voted no on the recall, but aren't enthusiastic about Governor Newsom. Who are some of the possible Democratic challengers to Newsom in 2022? Um,
9: Assemblymember Chu, listen. Governor Newsom has has gone through more crises in the last 18 months than I would say most of. Governors in recent California history, and from my perspective, and I think from many democratic leaders' perspectives, he's done incredibly well uh, of saying yes to signs, saying yes to facts, standing up for uh the broad rights that we all care about as californians and uh, I think there's going to be particularly after last night just tremendous enthusiasm for supporting uh, what he is doing as we move forward. Now, of course, we still have many issues that we need to tackle. And, uh, as he said last night, we've got to get back to work and continue to focus on them. But, uh, I, I think that last night's, uh, electoral results bode very well for Governor Newsom in his next, uh, in his reelection.
11: Yeah.
3: Let's bring in Oscar from Moraga. Welcome to the show.
11: Thank you.
3: Go ahead, Oscar.
7: Hello? Hey, we can hear you. Okay, great. So I, I just wanted to say I don't I don't understand much part of this discussion in that I think this governor is the greatest governor that this state has had in in my lifetime, at least since Jerry Brown's father. I mean, he. I listened to his speech last night after the recall. I didn't disagree with a single thing he said. He's a visionary. He's he's done incredible work on criminal justice reform. He's appointed people to the bench that never had a chance under prior administrations. Um, African Americans, Hispanics, um, people, the transgender people. I mean, he—he's uh, been uh, in regard to the science uh, and and what's happening in climate change. This is the sixth largest economy in the world. He has been in the forefront of the argument that we need to accept science and climate change. I mean, the the guy's a visionary. And intellectually, if you listen to him talk, there isn't an issue that he isn't adept at at speaking to. I mean, uh, for people to say that they're unhappy with him, what, because he had dinner at the French Laundry? Are you kidding me? I mean, I, I just don't get how anybody who's a Democrat in this state in regard to the issues that we are all facing as a nation, as a people in the world, don't listen to what he has to say and, and be like, thank God he's the freaking governor. Yeah. Uh,
3: Appreciate your so. uh, enthusiasm, Oscar. Scott Schaefer, is, is, there, is Oscar uh, exemplify a certain type of Democrat in the state who is extremely enthusiastic about Newsom, not because of who he is, but because of the policies that he's really enacted?
4: Oh, absolutely! I mean, you think, and you know, Oscar is right that uh, Gavin Newsom has been out in front on issues that were sometimes seemed, you know, kind of politically perilous, like in 2004 when he started issuing marriage licenses or authorized the the city to uh, to uh, same-sex couples. He was out in front on some gun control issues. He was an early advocate of legalizing marijuana when the Attorney General, for example, Kamala Harris, was very kind of wishy-washy on that. So yes, I mean he he is certainly uh, I, don't, I wouldn't use the word visionary, but he you know he, he is an early adapter of a lot of policies that later become the law and also kind of drift eastward to other states. You know that said, uh, he's also seen sometimes as uh, you know a bit elitist. I mean the French la- the thing about the French laundry dinner and of course I and I agree it was overplayed, but it crystallized. The frustration and the anger that some people feel toward Gavin Newsom because they feel that he, for rightly or wrongly, doesn't really understand the lives of working class people. Now, obviously, that wasn't reflected in the election, uh, the recall election, because the alternative uh, was worse to most Democrats, for sure. But I don't think that this should be taken as a total endorsement uh, and a total mandate to Gavin Newsom to continue doing everything that he's done. He said he was humbled last night, uh, and we'll see. I mean, we'll see what he learns from this, uh, from the recall and the effort. I mean, a lot of people who signed the petition were frustrated parents. They were frontline workers. They were small business people. You know, there were a lot of, there's a lot of anger that the um, petitions, allowed w- w- that became a, 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 a way to funnel that anger and that message that was sent to Newsom and You know, I think uh, he should probably pay attention to that. April writes, the recall election was a publicity scam that cost uh,
3: citizens of California possibly more than $300 billion, according to the Secretary of State, just so dozens of replacement candidates could get their names publicized. It's shameful. Kim Alexander, president and founder of the California Voter Foundation, I wanted to ask you how you think about the current set of democratic processes in California right now that do have some of these possibilities of you know, costing voters a lot of money, possibly for very little.
10: Well, let's start off by recognizing the fact that historically California has not paid its fair share of the cost of putting on elections and continues to put out more and more access for voters, which is great, but the counties are stuck uh, paying for that. So this was a huge relief, actually, to see the legislature being required under statute for the first time to pick up the tab for this election and uh, $300 million may sound like a lot of money, but it really works out to, you know, about 10 to $11 per voter, and that's not that much if you really think about uh, what you're getting in terms of democracy, and that's, that's uh, compared to other states, you know, not – Necessarily that much more or less. I mean, we give voters many avenues for voting and we make sure that nobody is left behind and we don't put up the kinds of barriers that other states do. So we mailed everybody a ballot, and that's a big reason why we saw a relatively calm day out at the polling places yesterday. I mean, I saw less than a a handful of episodes where people were having issues or glitches. And that's because we preloaded the election by letting people vote early, vote by mail, return their ballots to drop boxes. So I think that those procedures really help with election administration, you know, and there's a lot that happens behind the scenes with how we process ballots that voters don't fully understand. I do think we need to do a better job of making sure people realize that even though we give you numerous ways to vote, there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes in election offices to make sure that nobody votes more than once. Every signature on every envelope is checked. And if you don't sign or or you get it in too late, your ballot is rejected. And sadly, we see that happening uh, every election. We're always working to reduce ballot rejection. But I see that as evidence of how we are working to secure the vote. And we need to do a better job informing voters about all those procedures. Kitty Orr,
3: KQED politics and government reporter. Do you get the sense through your reporting that there is renewed appetite for reforming some of California's uh, democratic processes, which were put in place uh, you know, long ago and are now being sort of used in, in new and more complicated and expensive ways?
1: From obviously uh, Democrats, um, there is just a feeling that if you look at the polls and uh, and certainly the results of this election, most people did not want this recall we didn't want to pay for it we didn't want to have to go through the you know months of of uh, elections or campaigning and so you're seeing a movement already to reform the process in fact it, you know coming up at 10 o'clock uh, Senator Steve Glazer and assembly member Mark Berman are going to have a press call talking about reforms that they are proposing for the recall process so I think this is going to be a big part of the legislative discussion next year um, when the legislative reconvenes in January. And certainly they know they'll have the support of Governor Newsom if they get any bills to his desk.
3: Kitty, also, you know, Governor Newsom did have to really turn out the people in this, which meant he had to call on a lot of allies, raise new funds, all those kinds of things. Is there anyone who came through for Newsom who now might be expecting that he'll he'll do more for them?
1: I mean, certainly the labor unions, uh, the labor unions came out in force, as they often do uh, for Democratic candidates, and they certainly did this time. I was out on a uh... I followed a, a voter, like a, a canvasser, uh, who was urging people to vote against the recall uh, just a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was telling because it was an incredibly smoky and hot day in Sacramento. Uh, just not a day you'd want to be outside your house at all, and they still had a good, you know, 30, 40 people show up at this event, um, and to either make phone calls or actually go out and walk and knock on doors uh, for Governor Newsom. And so now uh, you already see labor unions saying, "Hey." you know, let's support. Great. Thank you so much. You know, you're welcome for the for the help we gave you. What are you going to do for us? And, you know, of course, they're subtle about it, but they're certainly going to be exe- expecting something for all the hours, literally like long hours walking the streets uh, that mm-hmm. they put in for Governor Newsom. Yeah.
3: Um, I want to bring in Hans from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Hans.
12: Hi, Alexis. It's great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. I just wanted to make the comment that uh, instead of a referendum on our incumbent governor, we actually were able to make this a referendum on the recall proponents uh, and the hate and disinformation that we saw peddled by the petitioners. You know, here in Los Angeles, here in our communities, we saw recall uh, signature gatherers uh, staging a protest that blocked access to vaccination appointments at Dodger Stadium on January 31st. We had members of our Democratic club who were in that line, who had their, uh, their appointment delayed. We also had a member of our club who passed away from COVID on that very day as those petition signature gatherers were calling it a hoax. So some of the depraved uh, indifference to the uh, pain from the COVID pandemic was uh, very much present on voters' minds and part of why we stood up and rejected this uh, recall so handily.
3: Yeah, you know, Scott Schaefer, one of the things that, that comes to me from Hans is that, you know, there was a time over the summer and, and earlier last year where it seemed like the governor's COVID policies would have a huge effect on this recall election. Did that just not happen? It seems like it kind of that was the uh, the dog that never barked.
4: No, I disagree. I think his COVID policies very much played into it, Uh, as Hans suggested. uh, You know, there's still a lot of people who are very worried if they have kids who aren't vaccinated or elderly parents or they themselves. They're worried about the Delta variant and who knows what the next variant is going to be. And some of the exit polling from some of the networks last night uh, indicated that some 63 percent of voters agreed with the policies that Newsom uh, had embraced, which means, you know, by, you know, By comparison, they disagree with what Larry Elder was proposing, which was to undo the mandates for masks and vaccines and all that stuff. And, you know, ironically, on Monday, the CDC announced that just three states in the United States had a a declining rate of covid and and California was one of them, one of three. Uh, And so it does. It's hard to say that what Newsom and California have been doing isn't working, especially compared to states like Texas and Florida and Missouri and Alabama. Yeah. Do you think we can actually expect stronger COVID mandates
3: now that the recall election is passed?
4: Not necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, I don't think anybody, including pre- from President Biden down, is looking forward to or, you know, wants to lock down. Again, no one wants to do that. There may be stricter mandates in terms of proving you're vaccinated or, you know, for frontline workers. We're seeing that now with employers that have contracts with the government. So I think we may see more of that kind of a carrot and stick, you know, kind of encourage people to get vaccinated by restricting their access to things like restaurants and sporting events and concerts. Uh, But, you know, I don't and I think it'll fluctuate based on what's happening with the virus. Uh, But, you know, at the moment, California is doing a pretty good job of containing it. And so I can't imagine uh, that unless it's absolutely necessary, we're going to see anything like what we saw in the early days of the pandemic or back around the holidays in November, December, January, where things were shut down and people were told to stay home. Let's bring in Josh from Palo Alto. Welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Josh. Yeah, go ahead. We can hear you.
11: Hey, thanks for having me. I wanted to comment on possible uh, reforms to the recall process. I know that was touched upon earlier, uh, specifically, but also more generally, California's sort of experiment, if you will, with direct democracy. Um, You look at the recall, uh, you know. The different Being props. Uh, basically, sure. a mirror, basically a mirror of the, of the 2018 vote or the presidential vote in 2020. And then things like the, the Uber proposition getting challenged in court and struck down and just kind of if the guests have any, any opinions on, on direct democracy in California and if that's working or, or if that should be pared down a bit and and going more through our, our representatives in the in the state legislature in Sacramento. Thank, Thank you. you so much for that, Josh.
3: Mike Madrid, I'd love to get your view from the Republican side of whether there's some compromise that can be struck on some of these direct democracy measures.
6: Well, I hope not. I think it's probably part and parcel of the California political tradition. It's what makes California California. A lot of what we decide by vote pushes the legislature oftentimes into areas where they're either not comfortable going or when there's excesses, and that's exactly what the system was designed for. Look, there have been 270 recall attempts uh, in the hundred years that we've had the recall uh, vehicle available to us. Only two of them have been successful uh, in qualifying. One, of course, with Gray Davis, actually was successful in removing him from office. The other was unsuccessful last night, and that was only successful because of an extended period of time during a a -a once-in-a-century global pandemic. So before we start reforming this system, let's let's just put this in context here. This is not a problem or a runaway vehicle. It is a safety valve that was created uh, about 100 years ago when special interests became too dominant in the capital and allowed for people to have some sort of access, some sort of way to have their voice heard. And I think in California, especially as a one party state, we have to be very, very careful in removing the ability of voters to have some sort of say. It's not a partisan judgment one way or the other. It's a simple function of having a one party state. I'd be saying the same thing if for Republicans that were so dominant. It's dangerous. A balance of power is required. And when we become too partisan one way or the other, the only recourse is the voters. And we're gonna have a lot more coming up in the next hour on possible reforms
3: to recall. You've been listening to special statewide coverage of the recall election with KQED's forum. Thanks to our guests, Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, Katie Orr, Politics and Government Reporter at KQED, Mike Madrid, who you just heard, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, David Chu, Assembly Member, District 17, Kim Alexander, President and Founder of the California Voter Foundation, and earlier we spoke with Mark D. Camillo, the Director of the Berkeley Institute for Governmental Studies. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Statewide coverage ahead with Mina Kim.
6: did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone hidden in the woods not speaking to a single soul for 30 years or wander the desert uncover a hidden well and die to the bottom of the deepest water hole for two thousand miles the Snapdragon podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.